Merry Christmas, and uh, we want to just start off tonight with uh, some singing and, um, and a, a word of prayer. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us as a church family to gather tonight. We come, Father, and um, gaining access to the throne of God, Lord, by the, uh, the precious blood of Jesus Christ who has sacrificed himself. And we worship him and we honor him with our lives. And so we come to praise his name and thank you for sending him into this earth, God in the flesh, living a perfect life and giving his own life, sacrificing it willingly, Lord, so that we can have a relationship and and be at peace with you and gloriously raising him from the dead. And Lord, we look forward to his return. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the the, the grace that has been extended to us. And so, Father, would you just speak to us tonight through your word? Lord, as we gather as a, a church family just to celebrate the birth of Christ, as we've studied these last weeks and, and months uh, of him coming into the world, Lord, I pray that we would just continue to reflect upon, um, Lord, the worth and the value that he is, Lord, not only to us in this world, but, but ultimately to you. And remind us of the sacrifice that was made for us. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time with our families this week. And uh, Lord, that Christ would be exalted in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome. We want to thank you for being here. I know some of y'all are are coming in from uh, maybe shoving a quick meal down. And maybe you're hungry and uh, your, your stomach's gurgling and you're ready to eat a quick meal. Um, so we won't be long, but I wanted to, we wanted to have our first Christmas Eve service as a church, and, and I'm thankful that you guys took some time out of your schedule. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and uh, Romans chapter 8, and I decided to, uh, just through prayer and stuff, to, to, to preach out of something a little different than a typical Christmas, Christmas Eve service message um, but we can all agree that, that all of God's word is, points us to Christ. And uh, these, these verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, are rich in um, reminding us of what Christ has accomplished in this world. And as, I, as you find your place there in Romans chapter 8, would you stand and let me read these first four verses? Romans chapter 8 reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You may be seated. You know, a few months ago, I was running out uh, doing some errands for my job at work, and, and I got a phone call from an unknown number on my cell phone. And um, the person on the other end, this, this gentleman, told me that he was from the IRS. And uh, he told me that he identified himself, and he told me that this, con- this call was being recorded and he began to tell me that uh, he began to tell me that there was a case number that had been um, 
had started and an investigation had been uh, done on our behalf, on my family's behalf, and that me and my family were guilty of tax evasion and fraud by the IRS. And immediately at first, I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I was extremely taken back by what he was telling me. He then proceeded to tell me that after the investigation had gone on for many months, they determined that the best course of action for me was to be arrested. And they told me that a policeman was on his way or her way to my work and that they were going to arrest me. And, you know, again, you're immediately hearing these things. And so the first thoughts in my mind were fear. I was terrified. I didn't, I didn't really understand exactly what all was being said. So I started to ask some questions. Um, number one, I asked, why have I not heard about this before? I'm already being arrested for something that I clearly haven't done. Number two was, is my accountant robbing not only me, but the federal government? Is she, is she a crook? And so the, the, as I began to answer these questions, the, the gentleman on the phone, who sounded very official and very condemning and, 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 and my guilt, according to him, told me that for me to rectify this, it was too late for me to rectify it, that the police were going to come and arrest me. So I, I said, well, I said, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. He said, well, you, I said, can I call my accountant? Can I call my wife? He said, absolutely not. You can't do anything, but you can make a, a you can rectify this. I'm going to give you this one chance. If you go to the bank right now and you get out money out of your account and, and take this to this location, then we'll call it even. And it was like a couple thousand dollars. Well, at that point, I said, I said, well, I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'll be honest with you. Uh, this sounds really shady. And I said, I know that I haven't done anything wrong according to the IRS. Um, I said, I have faith that, that we've done everything and we're in good standing with the government. I said, so I'll tell you what, um, you send the police and you have them arrest me and we'll, all, we'll clear all this up at the police station. And I hung up on them. So I thought that was it. <laughs> I thought I got him. Five minutes later, I got a phone call from a woman who said she was from the Memphis Police Department. And she said that so-and-so was, had contacted her from the IRS and that they were going to come arrest me. And I said, well, come on and arrest me. I said, I've done absolutely nothing wrong. And again, that, that part of it was clearly a scam, and uh, I never heard anything else about it. Although I did have the guts to call the number back, the same man answered, and I told him that he was a cheat and that God was going to judge him for what he was doing. So... I showed him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Here's, here's the idea that I, I was thinking about this. You know, many people in our lives, maybe you and, and I, have, have gone through um, a, maybe a similar condemnation from people. Maybe not on that level of uh, seriousness, but have you ever gone and experienced in your life uh, where people have judged you or they've not only judged you, but they've condemned you to a certain label or a certain understanding of uh, a, a, a reputation in the public, um, oftentimes when that's done falsely, it's very hurtful in our lives and our minds to be judged and condemned falsely. You know, it doesn't take long if you search on Google to find people who have gone to prison on false accusations and, uh, and even been, been deemed guilty. We, Amy and I are actually watching a, a show on Netflix right now called The Making of a Murderer of a man who was, he spent 18 years in prison 
and then was released because DNA evidence acquitted him. And I don't know if you understand much about the the legal system, but acquittal means that a judgment, this is according to the New Oxford Dictionary, that a a judgment of a person that, that is found not guilty of a crime which he has previously been charged. And so when we think about acquittal, this man named Steve, uh, I think it's Steve Avery, spent 18 years of his life, and then it dis- was found and the facts discovered that he was not guilty. And he was acquitted of those charges. But what's interesting about that is that acquittal is not a biblical term. You know, to think of, of, be- of people as uh, acquitted of the charges because of what Christ has done That's actually not a biblical term. We are not, as believers in Jesus Christ, acquitted of our charges. The crime of rebellion against our creator is actually a true factual statement. It is a true factual charge against us, and we are actually never acquitted, but instead Jesus Christ takes that blame and that punishment for us, he is the one charged for our crime. And so really our our innocence is because Jesus Christ is innocent. He is the one that removes that uh, guilt and gives us that pardon. Well, the reason that I wanted us to think about that this evening is because so much of uh, the Christmas story is the story of the gospel and the, the statement that is made in, in chapter 8 of Romans in verse 1. And really that's where we're going to focus tonight. Just a simple statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is such a, a powerful statement. And, and really many people have said that this kind of encapsulates the gospel. This that encapsulates the, if you want to get the whole understanding of the gospel in a a sentence or a phrase, we could take Romans chapter 8 as a great example of what the gospel is, that Jesus Christ has come, that we have been united with him by faith, and because of that, there's therefore now no condemnation upon us. What is condemnation? What is it that, that the Bible is teaching? Well, it simply means that God is not condemning those who have believed and trusted in his son. The, the fact that there is no condemnation means simply that, that God's judgment upon us and upon our sin has been transferred upon Christ. Condemnation is the, the legal act of an eternal judge who always deals rightly and justly in all of his ways. And so you and I hear the phrase, well, don't judge me. But the the truth of that phrase usually encompasses an incident where one person is offended by another person for evaluating an action in their life, and that other person declares it wrong. So if you hear someone that says, don't judge me, what they're saying is, don't declare that what I've done is wrong based upon your understanding of wrong. But the truth is, what is wrong? What makes going to your neighbor's house who borrowed your chainsaw and punching him in the face, what makes that wrong? What makes beating your children with a broom handle wrong? Well, the the laws of the United States make that wrong. Any personal violence upon another uh, individual is a crime punishable by the courts, whether it's your neighbor or it's your child. But guess what? 
Unfortunately, in our world today, laws change, right? Unfortunately, in our world today, before 1973, you could not take the life of a child in the womb. That, that, that murder was, 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 uh, uh, was not acceptable on any scale. And yet now, legally, we are permitted to kill children in the womb if this causes an inconvenience to life. The laws of taking human life have changed with the judicial system of this land. So how do we deal then with condemnation? Well, Paul is speaking of a spiritual uh, judge, an eternal judge, a higher court than the, the one that we dwell in or live under. And that highest judicial court is by our creator God. He is the judge over all. And as the one who's created all that exists, he rules over this creation with perfect holiness and justice and righteousness and goodness. Think with me of Psalm 98 that says, the Lord, comes to the, the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, if you're a parent in here this morning, or this evening, sorry, I'm not used to preaching at night. You're a parent here, you, you remember that common phrase between your children, that's not fair. And, and the best thing to do in that situation is to really get into a deep philosophical argument of what is fair. I mean, what really is fair in the scheme of life? Then you can take them to children in Africa who are suffering and, and in pain, and you can ask them if that's fair, or, or kids that are suffering in the world around us without food to eat, or parents, and, and that usually ends the argument pretty well for us. Well, what is really fair? Well, God is the one, as this verse in Psalm 98 says, who deals with peoples with equity. Equity means fairness. In my construction side job, that means something that's level, that's balanced, that, that, that's upright and square. Equity means that God is dealing with us in a, with us in a fair and right way. And ultimately, we know that God's character is that he does not change, thus his law does not change. His law is, is, is constant. His word and his commands are constant. They don't vary based upon emotion and so on and so forth. So therefore, as sin enters the world, so God must act against our sin because he is holy. As the holy judge of all... Our sin is an offense against the Creator, and He must deal with it justly. So people want to demand that God is unfair when God actually is completely and wholly fair in all that He does, in all His nature, in all His character. Because what God does defines justice, because God is purely just. So, we then must be punished for our sin, we must understand that no sin is overlooked. We must understand this truth if we are going to understand what Jesus Christ has come in the world to do for us. Romans 3.10 and 3.23 are most famous verses that we all know. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Young people, if you're here this morning, the, the greatest understanding that you can have in your young life at this moment is that you have sin in your life, that you have sin in your heart, that you want to rebel, that that is something that you desire to do, not only against your parents, but against God. 
And Jesus Christ has come to heal that. Jesus Christ has come to rescue you from that rebellion and that sin. So we understand then that what Paul is saying is that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the greatest understanding of the gospel is that we believe in Christ and therefore we will not be judged, we will not be condemned. Why? Because Paul uses the word specifically, we are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say we are with Christ Jesus. He says we are in Christ Jesus. We are united with him. We are, uh, we are connected to him spiritually so that he has accomplished for us all that is necessary and that our union with him is that we share in his righteousness so that we can stand before God as a holy God. And, and then Paul begins to kind of lay that out for us in verse 3 or 2 and 3. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned, he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice the, the, the contrast here. We are not condemned, but God condemned sin in the flesh. Notice that difference. That through Jesus, God condemned sin instead of us. So what we understand about these passages is a couple things. Number one, we can see from these passages, especially in verse 3, that the law of God, Paul says, is insufficient to save us. The law is insufficient. And Paul makes that case pretty much from Romans 5 to Romans 8. That nobody can come to salvation in Jesus Christ by following the law. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You know, we look at God's law and we look at the commands of God and we have to understand that, that the law of God is holy. The law of God is, is perfect. It's not evil. It's not set up to make us feel bad or, 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 or feel guilty. It is, it is created and given to us to lead us to holiness. But sin has entered the world. And because sin has entered the world, we fail to obey the law. So it is sin that weakens the flesh, as Paul says. It is sin that, is, uh, that weakens our flesh. And so what we need is, is we need some way to be reconciled to God besides the law. And so instead, God uses the law as like a bright light shining over a, 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 like a search party looking for an escaped convict or escaped villain, searching desperately to expose that which is deep within us. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead." So while the law is holy, it cannot save us, 
And so we need God to step in to exceed the law's ability and provide a way for salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's where the love of Christ or the love of God the Father is expressed clearly in verse 3. Notice he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son. Can you imagine this, this Christmas holiday as you're with your families that you would send your child to send your offspring, to send that person in your life off to their death? It's an it's a amazing thought. It's an amazing uh, sacrifice that we clearly cannot conceive in our own mind. Foretold in the Old Testament when God tells Abraham to, to take his only son and sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And then provides the substitute. Jesus Christ comes to fulfill that very um, uh, event in history to be the substitute for us. So also God the Father sends Jesus, his own son, providing the sacrifice, the substitute for us. What an amazing God we serve. And what does he do? He sends Jesus into the world as we've studied now for many weeks upon weeks. That we have seen this incarnation of Jesus. And notice how Paul He carefully phrases this. He says, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. He's careful not to say that he sent his own son in in sinful flesh. You know, Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh, but it was not a flesh inherited by sin. So what does he say? He, He carefully says it's the likeness of sinful flesh where that Christ could bear the flesh of humanity fully representing us on the cross and yet perfectly holy without sin. And so Christ demonstrates or represents and manifests that flesh so that he can go to the cross and that flesh can be broken and, and, and can face the wrath of God on our behalf. But he, he says something else interesting in verse 3. He says that not only does he send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he says he sends his own son for sin. And I love that because really what Paul means is that he is sending Jesus into the world not only to provide salvation, but to provide salvation in a way that he destroys sin. He is sending Jesus into the world for sin, not to reclaim sin, but to take sin and annihilate sin. He comes into the world like a, like a team, of, a SWAT team, uh, uh, coming in and, and, and searching out and destroying sin. It's a beautiful understanding for us to know that it is by the means of Christ removing the power of sin upon our life destroying the, the, the bondage that we are enslaved to, that we can have freedom in him. I mean, think about it. If you're going to come and rescue the prisoners, most oftentimes you have to destroy the captor. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. And so when we, we think about these things and we think about this idea that there is no condemnation for us. I also want us to focus on the, the word now in verse 1. Paul says there's no condemnation, 
But he uses this word, for there is now no condemnation. That, that, that idea is, is a, it's a, it's a statement representing present tense. It is a statement he's speaking to the Roman people to remind them of their new life in Christ. Don't worry about the past. There is now no condemnation. This is a point of change in history for all who believe in Jesus. So that that no longer are you looking to the past. Think about Paul being able to look upon his past and just be reminded of the grace of God and, and where he has been brought from. But he knows that now there is no condemnation for him because he is in Christ Jesus. He's seeking this present tense reality because he knows that he belongs to Jesus. And by declaring that those in Christ will not be uh, condemned, he is declaring without using these words that we will be justified. So if we are not condemned, this this guilty phrase, this condemnation or judgment, the, the, the positive of that is that we will be justified. We will be made right with God through the sacrifice of his son. And so you and I, if you're here this morning and you, or this evening and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul clearly is telling you that you cannot attain salvation by works, by, by doing the things that God has commanded in Scripture. You cannot follow the law completely. You can't even follow the law completely in one day of your life. We are clearly told to, um, to love our neighbor, to... to, to Uh, not have other gods before uh, the God of the Bible. We are told to be kind to one another. These things, we constantly uh, measure ourselves to, well, I don't worship a false god or, or I'm kind to my neighbor. But yet we oftentimes walk around with hate in our heart and we forget that Jesus has called that murder. Or the years that we live dishonoring our parents, maybe even today still dishonoring our parents. Principles of Scripture that clearly remind us that we are in desperate need of salvation from our sin. And so Jesus Christ says, or Paul says that of Jesus Christ, that we have been set free. I love that word, that we have been set free. And he says specifically, the spirit of life has set you free. Now I'm not going to take time to go through this whole chapter 8. But the Holy Spirit is actually the subject of chapter 8. You will see the word Spirit used, I think, 22 times in chapter 8, more than any in the whole chapter or the whole book of Romans. Because Paul is reminding us that as we are not condemned in Christ, instead we are justified in Christ. And because of that justification, we are also changed by the Spirit of God. And so if you ever struggle with assurance of your salvation and you go to 1 John and you read 1 John and and you're trying to find assurance, don't forget Romans 8. Romans 8 gives a great layout of how we can know that Christ has truly saved us. And the answer is simple, because the Spirit of God lives within you. And that's what he says. He, be, he, he starts it off by simply saying, the Spirit of life has set you free. You have escaped. You have been released as a captive from the bondage of sin. And not only are you justified, not only are you made right in the eyes of God, 
There's that point in time where you believe and trust in Christ and you are immediately justified, but you are also, because of your union with Christ, sanctified. I don't know about you, but if you take time to look back into your life before Christ, or even early on as a Christian, you will see the Holy Spirit changing you. And it is a moment that you should reflect upon over and over again. If you, if you wake up in, in the morning and you're grumpy, and you're trying to find that, that joy in the Lord, be reminded of the way that the Holy Spirit has continually shaped and molded you, even through difficulty, even through trials, where He has made you more and more into the image of His Son. You have much to be thankful for. You have much to praise Jesus' name for because of what he has done for us and for who he is as the, son, the only son of God. So we see that we have been set free, that we have been justified and, and sanctified. And lastly, he says, as I said earlier in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So just as Jesus comes and, and he, by his act of sacrifice, he, by his death and burial and resurrection, sin is condemned, he is fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. He is obeying the ways, uh, the, 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 the law of God perfectly for us because we cannot obey it. He is seeking and, and, and accomplishing our justification on his behalf. And he is doing that to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't say that it is fulfilled in him. Notice that in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's interesting about that and what Paul really means is this. Is that when you give your life to Christ, when you trust in him, he automatically justifies you. And there's a there is a, a, a a present reality that you are already made holy. You are already able to stand before God in, in perfect holiness. And yet, God is continually changing you. And in that change, in your union with Christ, you are acting out the fulfillment of the law in Christ Jesus. Meaning this, you are not, in, you are not accomplishing any righteousness by your good works. You are not accomplishing anything to, to merit a salvation. And yet in holiness, as you walk day to day as a Christian, because of your union with Christ, you are acting out the fulfillment of the law. When you love your neighbor, you are doing what Christ has already shown us to do. When you care for your spouse and you sacrifice for her, you are, all, you are just demonstrating what Christ has perfectly demonstrated for us. And so in an, in an act of what Christ has already done, you day by day live out this life of holiness and sanctification, resting upon the grace of God, fulfilling the law in a sense. Not to earn salvation, but just to reflect upon who has earned that salvation for you and I. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And Paul, and I, and I want to encourage you this week, as you're in your time of reading, to continue to read through Romans chapter 8. To be reminded of Jesus Christ, who has sacrificed his life for us. 
Look, let me just close with this passage from Galatians chapter 2. Paul says to the church in Galatia, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In our human nature, we, we, we strive and we try to accumulate many things in our life. We try to accumulate accolades. We try to accumulate possessions. It is very natural for us as human sinners that we would try to accumulate spiritual merit before God. It is part of our sinful human nature. And just as, as Paul says to the Galatians that, that there is no possible way for us to be justified before God, by our works of the law, we can, by faith, be justified in Christ fully. And flipping back to Romans 8 then, we can have assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as you go throughout this weekend with your, spirit, with your family, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to memorize Romans chapter 8, verses 1. And let me encourage you to do that for this reason. Because the enemy wants you to be reminded that there is condemnation for you. Do you understand that? That the enemy wants you to forget Romans chapter 8. He wants you to be reminded that you are not worthy of condemnation, or you're not worthy to be uh, one who escapes condemnation. And so Paul, in, a, in an act of reminding the Romans, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is so important for your life and my life as we live day by day because we will fail. We need to repeat these things in our minds and our hearts because we will fail in, in our own personal lives with Christ. We will fail our spouses. Our spouses will fail us. And when our spouse fails us, we need to be reminded and say in our mind, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When our children fail us, we need to be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to be reminded of those in our family, in our neighborhood, in our community, because Jesus Christ has given us a grace that we clearly don't deserve. And people are deserving of that grace as well. They are deserving of it, and it is the way that Christ is exemplified and demonstrated in our life. And so I, I challenge you this week, to constantly preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself, no matter your failures, if, you have a, if you're a person that lingers to the, the past history of your life and you, and you forget the grace of God, remind yourself of Romans chapter 8. And maybe that in-law or, or that obnoxious uncle at the dinner table who never says the right thing about your children, who never... <laughs> who, who never um, speaks highly of anybody, says anything positive, remember the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ has shown you. You are a greater rebel at heart, and he was extending you grace. And I would challenge you as a believer to extend the same grace to those in your family and your loved ones. And as we close today, I want us to focus on what Christ has done with uh, sharing together as a family the Lord's Supper and we'll be done. So I want to take a couple minutes and ask you to ready yourself to prepare your hearts and your minds. And if maybe there are things that God has been dealing with you in your life, that you would confess those things privately before God.
And then in a, in a, after the moment of silence, I would invite you to come and you will take these elements and we'll share this time together in the Lord's Supper. So take some time now in prayer. Don't worry about the children. They'll be fine.